Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Nir. Hi, this is Nir Izakovich. I'm uh, the director of the Applied Ethics Center at UMass in Boston, and this is our podcast, Ethics in Action. And my guest this morning is my uh, friend and colleague, Dan Feldman. Dan is the senior research associate at the center and um, is uh, currently the CTO at TouchPlan. Dan has had a long and illustrious uh, career in technology, recently uh, in um, uh, uh, Kayak, where he was vice president, and before that at uh, Hewlett Packard and many, many uh, other companies uh, before, and is the rare animal who is both a technical genius and uh, very, very uh, adept at uh, uh, the history of science and uh, philosophy. So Dan, welcome and thank you for uh, uh, being with me and uh, bearing with some of our uh, questions. And uh, we are specifically going to uh, talk about um, uh, superintelligence and uh, the coming uh, tyranny of our uh, robot overlords, which uh, before Corona hit us uh, and before the anxieties about COVID-19 took over uh, our uh, routines and imagination, was a uh, favorite uh, rising anxiety on the horizon. So uh, Dan, maybe we can start by um, asking you to say a few words about what the worries uh, were about uh, superintelligence uh, as you understand them, how they have to do with uh, artificial intelligence and we can take it from there. Yeah, um, so I don't think the worries have gone away. I think they've just been, um, the, the amount of attention being paid to them has been eclipsed by, by the current anxieties. Um, the, the sorts of things that people seem to be worrying about are uh, uh, things like, um, well, first let's start with a definition, right, of superintelligence. Um, Good idea. Superintelligence and artificial general intelligence. Uh, and it sh we should be clear that we're nowhere near um, technology which, uh, which would satisfy either of these definitions today. So artificial general intelligence would be a, uh, a machine that can um, perform the cognitive tasks of a human being, um, the full panoply of those tasks at the level of capability of the average human being. Um, and superintelligence is, is really just something that's cognitively better than a human. Um, and, and by implication in uh, all cognitive fields. And, in, and uh, the scary scenario is the, um, the intelligence explosion, you know, where the, where the machine has now become smart enough um, and is as capable at, at creating machines as we are, in fact, more so, and so it starts creating more machines um, that um, then have to somehow negotiate their uh, their relationship with us as humans. 
Um, and, and there are, you know, fears that they'll have their own agendas and those agendas will be um, malign with respect to human beings. Um, there's, there are theories that, well, you know, they, why wouldn't they be as indifferent to us as they are, as we are to uh, insect species, for instance, um, and, as opposed to, you know, maliciously trying to dominate ant colonies. Um, and so, so if artificial general intelligence, as it were, is the first step in that ladder of uh, uh, anxiety, how far are we from that with existing uh, uh, technologies? How far is that worry? Well, I think, uh, I think it's practically speaking, it's really quite far. Um, although it's difficult to discount um, you know, innovations and breakthroughs that by definition aren't anticipatable. Um, but if you look at today's technology, uh, it's, it's not great, right? We, we have uh, a relatively limited set of tools, um, specifically around statistical machine learning, um, and even more specifically around um, artificial neural networks, and yet more specifically around multi-layered, multiple hidden layer artificial neural networks um, that allow us now to um, to emulate uh, human performance and sometimes exceed it in very specific ways at very specific tasks um, at a variety of things that no one thought practical uh, or, or to be on the near-term practical horizon uh, as recently as 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, but it's all very narrow. Right? So we're sort of getting decent at recognizing human speech and we're sort of getting decent at recognizing human faces. Um, and clearly machines can be um, built to play um, games pretty effectively. Um, but historically, the ability to play a game, to win a chess game, for instance, hasn't really been um, a, uh, a good predictor of, uh, of the uh, full scope intelligence that people are, uh, are uh, anticipating or worrying about or perseverating on in you know various literatures, whether it's the scientific literature or the science fiction literature or the popular press. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I would, my current assessment would be that we, what we have right now are very narrow um, and, and, and carefully crafted tools that allow us to, um, to perform tasks that have historically been performed by humans, cognitive tasks in particular. So, so different, so is it, from the layman's perspective, would it be accurate to say that different AIs are essentially adapt at performing very narrow, different tasks, but to move to anything like artificial general intelligence or certainly super intelligence, what is completely not on the horizon is some kind of coordinating function, which isn't there that would bring all of these together in some sort of uh, uh, orchestrated fashion uh, in one algorithm or in one AI? Uh, yeah, that would be a way to think about it. I mean, if you look at the, the historical AI research program going back to the mid fifties, it's, it's a very broad program that contemplates um, uh, the need to address problems in reasoning, in uh, planning, in uh, language processing, in learning, um, 
and a variety of others. And, uh, and for the most part, most of the tools that we're dealing with are um, custom built um, around uh, the, the relatively narrow task of recognizing patterns. And that's what statistical machine learning is really good for. Um, and the kinds of algorithms that are implemented in the, under the general rubric of statistical machine learning, including these, these so-called deep learning algorithms, um, uh, are, are really just uh, pattern recognizers. Mm -hmm. um, and humans are especially good pattern recognizers, so it's not a bad, if you wanted to, to duplicate human cognition, it's not a bad place to start. Um, but none of them is, is, uh, is out of the box general purpose. That's to say none of the recognizers that you build. The, the underlying algorithms are, are relatively general purpose, but they require an extensive amount of training and tweaking mm -hmm. in order to end up with, um, with something that functions in a real world environment. Mm -hmm. So if we just sort of go to a few examples, what we have are algorithms that are very good at predicting whether you are going to pay back your loan then as a result are uh, instrumental in making loan decisions and uh, similarly making uh, credit allocation uh, credit card allocation decisions and all kinds of uh, uh, very specific uh, uh, for example guide as uh, sentencing guidelines decisions and so on and so forth so we have these operating in a variety of areas so what is it that brings people like uh, Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking or uh, um, Nick Bostrom, the uh, Oxford philosophers, to worry so much that that, I mean, it almost seems like there's a evolutionary leap somewhere uh, hiding between those discrete abilities that are already functioning pretty widely in the economy uh, and this thought of, artificial general intelligence or super intelligence? Is that just a sort of failure of the imagination to see that there can be discrete abilities that don't morph, don't evolve into a general ability? Or is there some sort of technological basis for their concerns? What? Uh, well, I think, I think it's maybe an overactive imagination rather than a failure of imagination. And, it's, and I think it's based on um, I mean, it's difficult to speak for any of these people, but I think it's based on um, uh, a projection into the future of technical advancements that have happened historically in computing um, that, that may not be at all justified. Uh, so if you, if you look at the growth in computing over the last 40 years, what you see is um, machines that uh, for the same amount of money are on the order of 10 million times faster, more power efficient uh, than, than they were um, in the beginning uh, of the micro, microprocessor era. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a phenomenal growth curve. Uh, and it's what's allowed us to get where we are today. It's, it's the fact that it's persisted for so long has uh, been really remarkable. Um, if, you, if you think about um, other technologies that we're all familiar with that have been transformative for society. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that what, what's being developed today is not in some fundamental way going to, to really change how we are as an economy and as a society, but you look at railroads or automobiles and uh, none of them is 10 million times better than it was at the beginning um, by any measure. Uh, 
but does it really require 10 million? I mean, so I think the layman's uh, argument and anxiety is again, we now with the iPhones have in our pockets the computing power that it took to spend, send spaceships to the moon uh, in the 60s. Well, far more than the computing power yeah. that it took to uh, do that, right? So why wouldn't these discrete algorithms that are better at facial recognition or uh, identifying tumors than we are now uh, or predicting uh, recidivism or what have you, or, or I guess there the uh, capabilities are still underdeveloped to put it mildly. But why wouldn't these discrete algorithms then follow a similar kind of uh, curve and uh, grow into some kind of uh, general capability in a similar time span of 40, 50, 60 years? Or is that a qualitatively different kind of growth from the well, I, iPhone uh, and from uh, credit allocation to general intelligence? Are those even similar kinds of growths? Uh, they, well, sure, they could be. I think that, that if, you, uh, if you took the kind of creativity that's been applied to those problem spaces mm -hmm. and you went after the rest of the AI agenda. You yeah. know? Um, but, but underlying all that is the assumption, and this is where I think there's this over-imagination, if you will, there's this assumption that, that you're gonna have to, that we're going to continue to see the kind of growth in computing capability that we have seen historically. And, mm -hmm. and the evidence is that the hardware is not going to be doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so the kind of two fundament, fundamental scaling phenomena that we've seen in semiconductor technologies, uh, um, something that's been called Moore's Law, Mm -hmm. um, and everybody's pretty familiar with the idea, at least, which is that, you know, on a very regular basis, every 18 months or so, um, the amount of uh, transistors on a silicon chip doubles. Um, and, the, um, and, and for the same area, right, you get, you get, it gets denser and it requires the same amount of power. And then Denard scaling, which talks about the relationship between um, density and power in, in memory chips. Um, those have, have had this regular cadence up until recently. Mm -hmm. And it's that regular cadence, which is this exponential growth curve. You know, so if it doubles every 18 months, then it's quadrupled in three years. And in another uh, 18 months, it's now um, eight times. And in another 18 months, so now you're at a grand total of six years, it's, it's up to 16 times. You know, that kind of growth pattern um, has been absolutely typical of uh, – of the of the hardware advances and that the semiconductor engineers have been able to provide to us, um, there's uh, plenty of evidence that that's that's pretty much over, both in terms of Denard scaling and in terms of Moore's law, which was never a natural law, right? And one of the one of the confusions that people can fall into is that because it's been called Moore's law, that it's somehow a law of physics, like you know Newton's laws of gravity or something. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's it was a business plan that Intel decided to execute on and invest in in order to make it come true, mm -hmm. um, and and it's been it's been uh, widely followed as a model of industrial innovation and industrial investment in 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 our society for decades now, but it's running into fundamental physical limitations and it's clearly flattened out. Um, Basically, Moore was saying as long as computing power grows in this kind of way that I hope it continues to grow and we can continue to make exponentially more and more money. And as a result, that motivated 
engineering that kind of growth, but now it actually, the commercial, you're saying the commercial law actually ran into a physical law. Yeah. And um, that, that growth is flattening. Right. And already flattening or? Flat, essentially flat. Um, I mean, there, I think it'll, it's certainly slowed way down, um, essentially flat for the foreseeable future, unless there are some real breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and, that, and I think that that's fundamentally what's going to limit the, um, the realization of this dystopian view of artificial intelligence. Um, but let me ask you something which I, which I don't completely get. Even if you theoretically abstract from uh, the limitations of computing power and from the flattening of Moore's law and so on and so forth, even if computing power was to grow exponentially uh, and continue growing exponentially, exponentially and memory uh, capabilities will continue to grow exponentially, wouldn't that just mean that the narrow abilities that you spoke of earlier would get exponentially better as opposed to a coordinated ability emerging that, that there's sometimes there seems to be some sort of leap there from very powerful narrow abilities to an emergent general abilities and the emergent general ability doesn't necessarily seem connected to growth in computing power um so let's sort of separate emergence for a second um mm -hmm. And, and the idea of emergence from um, from sort of practical engineering. Okay. Right? And um, from a practical engineering point of view, um, if density of of your devices continues to increase at um, essentially constant cost and power, or you know for unit of work decrease you know dramatically decreasing cost and power, then in a certain amount of time you'll be able to do more work. Right. And, this complex work of planning and having goals and coordinating will become more feasible. Got it. Um, so I think that uh, that that that's the underlying dynamic for technologists who um, who project into the future um, a dystopian outcome mm -hmm. based on the historical trend in semiconductor technology and you know and I, I think there's also this kind of interesting um insincerity from some of those folks because you know not only are they waving their hands about uh, the coming robot apocalypse and 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 funding think tanks to to work that particular agenda they're also investing heavily in in creating it mm -hmm. um so uh, it's not really clear where their bets are, um, or, or, or even where their commitments are. I, I think in the end, it'll you know their commitments are to the thing that makes them the wealthiest. But um, is there is there sort of a analogy to evolution that at some point there's a sort of with enough computing power, at some point there's a random variation that will emerge that will allow the uh, discrete impressive tasks to become coordinated i guess that's the one step yeah so don't get. right yeah so i guess there's uh, two, two ways to think about that one is 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 there a um is there selective pressure going on in the ecosystem that creates these technologies mm -hmm. that drives them in any particular direction um and the other is uh if you have sufficiently powerful digital computing devices 
interconnected in a way with the right kinds of communication capabilities at the right speed, with the right um, total bandwidth, with the right um, uh, controls around access and security, um, could a uh, could a capability to plan and create goals and and strive to achieve them emerge um, sui generis from that and uh, well I think that that's possible I think it's highly unlikely even um, with the technology in place yeah because most of what we're doing with our computing devices is building ways to keep them from talking to each other. I mean, we, we, we want to control the way they talk to each other. They're very, you know, yes, there's the net out there and you can, and you can, you know, go get information from anywhere you want, whether that information is, a, you know, in the form of a, of a you know, first, first run movie or it's um, a, a database of you know, all the books that have ever been published or, um, you know, Census Bureau statistics or whatever it is, you know, the, the, the World Wide Web has made it possible for us to, um, to get information readily if people will allow us to. And it's also created uh, an underlying infrastructure for doing distributed computing, which has been around for a long time. The idea that you, you separate the computing tasks between different computers and they coordinate with each other. Um, but those are all very task specific. And mostly what we do is try to keep each other out of our networks, right? The internet is a network of networks. Um, that's why it's called the internet. And, oh. and, and so, um, you know, there's an enormous investment being made in keeping people from going off and taking computing tech, uh, computing capacity from, from my data center and using it as if it was theirs, unless I want them to. So I think that, you know, there are, there are hurdles to that kind of emergence, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, the economic pressures of our current way of organizing computing are going to mitigate against. That's interesting. You and I have uh, both read materials and talked about the fact that uh, the Chinese, for example, especially in the areas of some of the military technologies, uh, have more of a focus on uh, um, uh, research on uh, artificial general intelligence uh, than we do here. I wonder if some of that is made possible because the economic pressures there are different and there's more of an alignment between, as it were, government goals and uh, uh, commercial goals. So they're less focused on preventing the uh, coordination and flow of information from one area of, uh, of industry to another. Um, uh, it could be, seems unlikely to me, I think command and control economies don't actually like the free flow of information in any way. Well, between parts of, between, you know, different parts of the command and control economy. So in other words, uh, uh, Weihu and Alibaba aren't in the same kind of competition uh, as it were as Microsoft and Google, uh, if it is truly a command and control economy. I'm sorry, you're saying that well, I mean, it's it's they they have this certainly the, the Chinese are trying are experimenting with this mixed model where they encourage competition and and the selective pressure that competition brings, um, at the same time making uh, 
um, very determined industrial policy. Uh, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that, for example, if the Chinese have a goal of developing some kind of artificial general intelligence system, for example, for military coordination purposes, right? An artificial general, general, right? Or artificial yeah. general uh, uh, military strategist, uh, 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 if you will, that can coordinate large amounts of data. One problem to do that here would be that the different commercial companies that would be involved have an interest in competing with each other and preventing information from each other, right? And, and preventing data flow from each other. And that would be less the case, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, in a Chinese model. So if part of what you're saying is that under open market conditions, under classical open market conditions, one hurdle to the development of a super intelligence or artificial general intelligence would be the segregation of information because you don't want to lose money to your competitors. In a different economic model, there would be less of that. Um, uh, perhaps, I mean, I, you know, the United States government has been uh, pretty adept at making investments and, and arranging incentives so that if there's a major uh, policy objective that needs to be met by, by uh, steering um, innovative uh, investment, well, innovative energies that they figure out how to do that. Um, you know, an example would be the National Nuclear Stewardship Program, which is our alternative to blowing up actual nuclear bombs. Um, and that's really driving a, a huge uh, chunk of the work in traditional computational supercomputing. Um, and, uh, and the, you know, the government coffers have, uh, have a real impact on the behavior of major industry players like Intel and Hewlett Packard Enterprise and, um, it's, we're really down to, um, you know, Dell. I mean, we're, we're pretty much down to only a handful of, of major players left in the supercomputing space in the United States because of consolidation over the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, so, so if I'm summarizing some of the things that you've said to me, I'm seeing at least five hurdles uh, that need to be overcome for even something like this to be possible. And some of these seem technically difficult to overcome and some of them seem just kind of straight up unlikely uh, uh, from an emergence kind of standpoint. So let me see if I can summarize them. One is the kind of contingent economical factor that we tend to segregate information rather than to facilitate its growth. And I'm sorry, rather than to uh, uh, facilitate uh, its exchange. And uh, so that would get in the way. Uh, number two is that there's simply not the computing capacity because Moore's law has flattened out. Uh, number three, even if the uh, capacity, even the computing and memory capacity was there, would coordinated ability happen to emerge or not? Um, how easy would it be even with existing, even with exponential growth to uh, have that independently emerge, right? The coordinated capacity. Number four, even if it did emerge, uh, would it want actual power? That seems to be an underlying assumption there that intelligence and some sort of will to power are connected. 
And then finally, even if it did want power, it's beginning to sound like the Haggadah and Passover, but, yeah. right? Even if it did want power, would it want to use it for bad purposes? And somehow for the anxiety to um, be truly potent, all five of those would have to happen, or at least the first four would have to happen. That seems to be very unlikely. Yeah, again, you know, barring breakthroughs, right? So if it became easy and cheap because of quantum computing or optical computing or biological computing. Um, so yes, so say more about that because that was going to be the next question. So zooming in on one of these five changes that needs to take place for uh, super intelligence uh, uh, to emerge, what would the technical breakthroughs, what are the technical breakthroughs that uh, potential technical breakthroughs that catch your attention for the emergence of AGI or superintelligence? Um, well, I think that uh, quantum biological. What? Yeah, the quantum optical biological trio um, are you know really fundamentally different ways of approaching computing. What we think of as di today is electronic digital computing. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> There are sort of intermediate technologies. Say a little uh, bit about what those are from a layperson for a layperson's uh, understanding level, like myself, and then how they could be game changers in the AGI space. Uh, oh, well, I'll do my best. Um, the idea behind quantum computing, the thing that makes it so powerful, is that um, the computer, the, the computational device, is in more than one state concurrently. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the big problems with, for instance, breaking, um, advanced ciphers, the, the kinds of code that protects much of our current economy from, um, malicious hacking, it requires, if you're going to break it, you have to run a lot of calculations and you have to run them, um, In order. You have to run them fundamentally. You have to run them sequentially. Although you can break it up into chunks and run the chunks in parallel. Yeah. Um, and the thing that quantum computing gives you is the ability to run them all exactly at the same instant and get a single answer. Um, and uh, and that terrifies the cybersecurity folks, rightly so, and the defense um, folks. Um, but you know, as as we always do with military technologies, in particular, we'll continue to develop them because we're concerned somebody else might. Okay. Um, so there's kind of an arms race mentality going on around quantum computing. I think mm. um, optical computing is uh, just recognizes that light goes faster than electrons, um, and so if you can if you can duplicate the kinds of devices that uh, we do uh, make with um, with silicon and 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 that transport electrons around, then you can get something that's substantially faster. Um, and then, uh, which then opens up, you know, the opportunity for at least another step uh, in the evolution of these kinds of technologies. And then the final one, the biological computing, um, there's, there's very little uh, around information storage that's denser than a molecule of DNA. Um, you know, DNA is a tremendous information uh, storage and recording mechanism and we only have scratched the surface of how you would compute with it in the sense that we think of computing um, <clears throat> so 
again, I mean, it offers the opportunity for complexity that we can't currently build ourselves, but you could imagine evolving. Um, it offers the opportunity for density that we can't currently build ourselves. Um, so th those, those things could be transformative for the possibilities that, of what could be implemented. And yeah. it's not deterministic, right? It doesn't, the fact that you have them doesn't determine the outcome. Yeah. And your sense is that they're just, their stage of development at this point is so embryonic that it just seems premature to worry what will come of them and what they will be capable of doing. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, there's a long way to go for all of them before you have practical devices that are economically competitive with what we can do today with mass-produced silicon. Are there, are there striking applications that we know of of any of these yet, or are all of them at kind of theoretical research stages? Uh, well, optical is certainly um, you know widespread in our broadband telecommunications network, so it's not it's not a completely not, you know un, uninvested in undeveloped technology. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, optical uh, transmission, data transmission inside the data center or even within the computer is practical today. Um, to actually compute with optics is, uh, is not really well developed yet. Um, quantum is more developed in the sense that people are building de practical devices that can solve uh, problems at a scale which, is, which are difficult for mainstream traditional semiconductor-based computing to do. Um, but they're very narrow applications. They're very special purpose. They're things like cryptography. Um, and uh, how you generalize from that, what's the point? I, mean, you, you can, I can imagine as an engineer, I can imagine that there's a place for an optical computer in a sophisticated system that has lots of capabilities. It's just not clear to me what that place is. Yeah. You know, if you were de designing a brain, Right. Truly a brain, not just this, you know, metaphor we throw around for computing as some yeah. kind of brain. Um, but if you were truly designing a brain, you know, is there a place for, for this optical device and how many of them would you need? And, you know, could you make them small enough to be practical or cool them or yeah. right how they operate it at, at, you know, at near, yeah. near zero, absolute zero, right? They're, they require all kinds of infrastructure. Very reminiscent of what, you know, big, large-scale computing looked like. 60 or 70 years ago. Um, I mean, and on, the, on the biological side, I think we're, you know, people are doing very early days of being able to um, produce reliable devices that, that function the way we think thought functions, or at least the way we emulate thought with our digital devices. Yeah. Um, but, but nobody understands how the human brain works, certainly. And, right. You know, right. Lots of clues, but they're a long ways away from duplicating that. So what you're going to get that's going to appear to behave like a human, at least in subdomains, is going to be implemented in a radically different way than yeah. our, our intrinsic biology does. Yeah. I mean, again, I can't help but think that there's two orders of questions here. Even if all of these agendas turn out to be as promising as people hope they will be, the uh, optical um, and biological and the quantum, they seem to solve the Moore's law flattening out kind of problem, right? So all of potentially this, they do, right? Potentially they do, right? So all of a the sudden, there's a lot more 
computing uh, power on the table, but that still doesn't tell us anything. Uh, as you were saying correctly, uh, is the case as well with our brains. That still doesn't tell us anything about how uh, intentions, wills, and desires emerge from computing power. Just like we're somewhat still, not somewhat, still struggling with, you know, understanding how consciousness emerges from our own uh, uh, organic matter. Seems to be a parallel question there. And there seems to be, I guess that's what I meant earlier with a failure of imagination. The assumption that if will, desire, and intention emerged from our organic gray matter, it must emerge also from um, superior computing power made possible by whatever this trio of technology uh, uh, actually materializes, if any. That seems to be just a sort of, um, I guess I don't get what grounds that leap. Yeah, I don't think anything does. I think it's pure fantasy. Yeah. Um, so let me then... <laughs> Let me then ask you, as a uh, uh, thoughtful and historically, uh, very historically grounded technologist, then if it's not super intelligence that keeps you up at night and AGI that keeps you up at night in terms of uh, uh, technology's malign influence, uh, uh, what does? Um, well, I think that... Uh the, the, the kinds of things that I'm concerned about um, and that you and I have discussed in various venues are uh, the, um, the way that we um, become as humans because of the capabilities that the technology provides and the social structures and economic structures that we um, engage uh, you know, the values that are embedded in, in, in those, those social phenomena. So for instance, um, computers are getting pretty good at recommending things to you. Um, you know, you go to any online store these days and, and, and there's a machine learning algorithm that's trying to, to figure out what pattern you match. You know, it's the, well, you, you bought these six books, so you're likely to like this seventh. You watch these six movies, you're likely to, enjoy watching this seventh movie. Um, and they do that even without you having to provide feedback. It's simply watching the pattern of what you buy, um, what you're willing to pay for. Um, and so we're getting to a place where uh, you're going to more and more expect that uh, the world is organized to meet your needs in that very specific way. Um, why, why isn't the restaurant anticipating what you're going to order and making sure they have it on the menu for you? Um, or whatever, um, and um, and and that I think you know exacerbates um, and ex accelerates and accentuates a certain kind of narcissism that uh, that's substantially different from um, from what we would have said even a hundred years ago was valuable in humans, mm. um, and and then on uh, sort of complementing that. Um, the kinds of technologies that you talked about earlier around practical day-to-day -day judgments around uh, sentencing or hiring and firing or um, creditworthiness uh, that, that are getting made over and over again now that are getting pushed into algorithms because the algorithms are arguably more reliable than humans. Um, 
Now, they, they could be flawed, and there's certainly a lot of anxiety and work done at the level of, you know, there's, they're, they're intrinsically unfair. The pattern, the facial recognition algorithms can't see black people. The, they, they do worse with women. I mean, there's all kinds of technical problems that um, people find in the implementations. Um, but ultimately, those can be fixed. And um, as you and I have discussed, you know, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to expect that they will be because it's better for the people who are producing um, these capabilities if they are fixed. Um, and so, uh, so as they become more reliable than people, there's going to be less and less incentive for people to be doing those jobs. And it's going to be easier to substitute a machine for those jobs. And if you do that, um, then um, we as, uh, as individuals in society have fewer and fewer opportunities to learn how to make those judgments ourselves. We have fewer and fewer opportunities to practice judgment and to become good judges of things. Um, and, and so, you know, my, the thing that, that, that provokes my anxiety is a world of uh, amoral, that is to say folks who are not grounded in any moral, any particular moral sense because they haven't had to make moral judgments, um, narcissists. A world of amoral narcissists is not going to be a fun place, yeah. um, uh, unless it's just going to be a completely fun place, right? Is that you know? Is that are we are we hedonistically enabled by these technologies, and you know maybe there's something out there that keeps us from harming each other, even if that's what we think is fun? So it's so it's the convergence of being so subject to <clears throat> these narrow AI predictions that you start taking yourself seriously enough to think that the world should conform to uh, your desires and predict them. It's the convergence of that and, you know, what um, uh, the uh, deterioration and the atrophying of our uh, uh, moral practical uh, judgment skills that comes from the fact that we need to make less and less of them in various discrete areas that <clears throat> combines into this perfect storm. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, this is the dystopian uh, view of what happens under circumstances where 30, 40, 50% of work is replaced over the next uh, uh, two generations. But wouldn't, wouldn't you think that just as technology, uh, you know, sort of de-skills us and uh, uh, sends us whirling into narcissism that there could be a technological solution for uh, reskilling re re us and morally educating us? Um, well, I think that, yeah, I think that the, um, that there's a naive version of the de-skilling argument, um, which is the most common one, which is simply that, well, if you, if you replace human labor with machine labor, then something is lost and that's intrinsically bad. Um, and, uh, and there's a counter argument that says, well, no, if you don't have to, uh, uh, if you don't have to operate the loom yourself anymore, then, then if not that specific worker, then society as a whole has the opportunity to, to, to do something that's more value adding than that 
or at least mm -hmm. more satisfying to the individual than that. Yeah. Um, all the all the loom workers can march proudly to the sunlit uplands. Yeah. Um, and the reality, of course, is that it's nowhere near that smooth a track. Uh, and people get hurt along the way and, that's, and, and get lost along the way and get abandoned along the way. And that's, um, and that's the horror that people associate with industrial revolutions of any sort. You know, either the first or second in this country or this third one that we're in, in the middle of right now. Um, but at the end, were people's lives better? I think inarguably so, right? The, yeah. the, you know, that we've gotten through the, um, the, the, a culture where, where nearly everybody was, was materially impoverished to the point of subsistence. Yeah. Um, and very few had any chance to develop any kind of moral agency other than what, you know, they were instructed on in their, you know, regular religious service. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, but it certainly happens to be contingently true that right now where people have a lot of the context for developing their moral skills and some of the kind of moral qualities that you've uh, uh, pointed to, such as uh, uh, a degree of modesty or not, you know, having your head become too big, uh, are uh, work. And uh, right. the interactions that happen around work. So at the very least, would sort of behooves us to be thinking about if work gradually recedes, uh, what are the alternative contexts where we develop these skills if we assume that having them is good and losing them is uh, uh, bad. Uh, that's less dramatic than the anxiety about, you know, the Blade Runner uh, uh, intelligent uh, uh, robots. Uh, but in some way, that's already here, um, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, I think, I think we're, I think we see it every day, some aspects of it every day. I mean, what, the, what aspects of it are you seeing? Uh, uh, well, there's, there's a pervasive sense of entitlement. There's a pervasive discounting of expertise. Right? The, the belief that because I have access to lots of information, I am as good at making judgments about medical matters or issues of nuclear war as people who have made a career out of studying them. Yeah. You know, which is an argument that uh, a scholar named uh, Tom Nichols makes in a book called The Death of Expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and that our current... Uh, president makes when deciding how to treat the his fear fundamentally his fear that he was exposed to um COVID-19 yep right um so um it's it certainly is all around us you know this wealth does seem to lead to decadence in one one way or another <laughs> uh, and we're a very wealthy civilization uh you know it's it's yeah. even the people who are aggrieved and 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 angry and and marching in the street and uh, are you know experiencing physical well-being or the opportunity for physical well-being that's far superior to to what they could have expected a hundred years ago, let alone you know historically over the the span of uh, the species. Yeah, yeah. So if one could put a kind of headline on it rather than the. Uh 
big explosion of the robot overlords, uh, your worries are more in the death of a thousand cuts kind of uh, 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 neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Well, well, I know, I know, I have to let you go in a, a, a few minutes, uh, but this has been really great, Dan. Thank you very much, and I'm very excited that we're going to continue having these conversations off camera. <laughs> okay, thank you. Been, been a pleasure. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics. Thank you.